When we finally sit down at the great wedding supper of the Lamb, there will be no tables for one. You and I, we live in a culture that celebrates the opposite of what the church stands for. We live in a culture, a John Wayne culture, that celebrates autonomy, that celebrates individual personal strength, that celebrates independence. And the result of living in such an independent-minded culture is that when we come to church, we sometimes have trouble making the adjustment. Is that you this morning? Are you a lone ranger in the faith? My sense is that many Christians find themselves straddling a line where they theologically accept everything we're going to talk about this morning, where they theologically accept that they're part of a body, part of a flock. They understand theologically and agree theologically with these things. They give their assent to these statements, and yet they don't know what that feels like in any significant sense. Perhaps because their church experiences in times past weren't that good. Perhaps because they've just not been willing to commit themselves to a church. Whatever the case is, sometimes we straddle a line. We look at the doctrine, we look at the theology, and we espouse the church, and we talk about the bride of Christ and the wedding supper of the Lamb. We say amen to all those things, but in a practical sense, we're really not part of anything. Or at best, we, we think we're part of something. After all, we show up on Sundays, but we don't really care to get to know Bob or Stu or Frank or Fran. If that's us, God's calling us to something more. Each one of us does have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And when you hear that phrase, it's okay to agree with it because it's true. We do have a personal relationship with Christ. It's one of the great things about Christianity is that the God who formed us was not content just to live a million miles off in space looking at us through a telescope, but he has sought us out. God with us. Emmanuel. He has sought us out. We have an intimate relationship with the one who formed us. That is great. That's wonderful. That is a blessing. We do have a personal relationship with our maker. But the relationship we have with our maker is proved and bears its fruit through the relationship we have with one another. Don't miss that point. You know, John 13, Jesus made a famous statement about how the world would know Christians. Do you remember what he said? Well, he said this. He says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. By the what? Love. By the love you have for who? For one another. Before we look in our text, I mentioned something about this. Well, Jesus says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. By the love you have for one another. Notice here, he doesn't say they're going to know you're Christians because of your love for the Bible. Now, should you love the Bible? Yes. He doesn't say they'll know you're Christians by the love you have for the world. Now, should you love those around you? Should you love your neighbor and your coworker and, and your relatives and even the people who sometimes are unlovable? Yes. But that's not what he says. He says they're going to know you're a Christian by the love you have for other Christians, by the love you have for one another. And where that love runs cold... We have to question ourselves. They will not know you're Christians based on having good theology, or being Reformed, or being a Presbyterian, or any of these things. These are good things. But that's not the measure by which the world will know that you are Christ's disciple. They will know you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. Are you known in that way? This morning... Ask yourself, be introspective, are you 
Bob or Frank or Fran or Sue, are you known for the love you have for the people to your left and your right this morning? If not, then let me submit what this text submits. There is a gap in your testimony if you're not known for the love you have for other believers. Not just the love you have for theology, not just the love you have for the Bible, but the love you have for the people that Christ died for. By this will all men know that you are my disciples, by the love you have for one another. With those words in mind from John 13, let's return now to today's text. Let's go back to our text, verse 19, and we're going to go line by line through it this morning. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. Now remember, he's talking to the church in Ephesus, people who were Gentiles, people who were outside of the covenant and the promises. He says, so then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Look at this phraseology. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That word is heavy with implication. You're members of the household of God. Now, in order to understand Paul's words here, again, we need to put them in the context of his, his original audience, as well as the context of you and I who are receiving them this morning. Now, as the title of the book suggests, Paul was writing in Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. He's writing to a Gentile, a predominantly Gentile audience, who were living in a region that was known for just widespread idolatry. Put it politely, Ephesus was one of the last places that you would have expected the God of Israel to send his grace, to send his love, to send his word, given the people's pagan practices and sinful ways. Now, Paul, earlier in his letter, he seemed to recognize this when he told the Ephesians to always remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That was the condition of the people in Ephesus. At one point or another, that was the condition of you and I, aliens and strangers, as people without God, without hope in this world. There was a time when you and I were in the state. This is the state of the people of Ephesus prior to God and his kingdom coming into their lives. See, the Ephesians did not suffer from lack of gods in the plural sense, God's lower G. The, the Ephesians had gods for every season in a man's life. Every event that he might practice. However, despite all the, the gods with a lower G that they had, despite all their religiosity, the people of Ephesus had no long-standing relationship and no covenantal relationship with the only God that mattered, with the God of Israel. Ephesians were a people separated from Christ. Aliens. They were strangers and aliens to God's promises. And up until that time, until God entered into the picture with his love and with his gospel, they had no hope. They were without God, without hope in this world. Furthermore, it's not just that they were deprived from something good. But furthermore, like sinners of every age and every culture, the Ephesians were owed something bad. The Ephesians were rebels. Just like you and I were at one time. They were, they were rebels against the one who had made them. They had broken God's laws in numerous ways, and they were used to living as they saw fit. And for all these reasons, they were a city built on the train tracks of judgment, and the train was coming. That was the state. That was the fate of the people in Ephesus apart, apart from the gospel entering in. Although they were a city built on the train tracks of judgment, that was not the state that God left the Ephesians in. He was not content to condemn them. Although they certainly earned that condemnation. 
In verse 19 of today's passage, Paul says to the Ephesians, although they once had been in that state, although they once had been in the bullseye of his wrath, given their sinfulness and their pagan practices and all these things, although they were in the bullseye of God's condemnation and God's judgment, he says that although that was true, although you were strangers and aliens and without hope and without God in this world, that something has happened. A change has entered in. And it's not that you, Ephesus, finally got with the program. It's that God came to you through his word and through his ministers. And he brought you the gospel. And now, as a result, and this is the transition you see in these verses, now you are not strangers and aliens. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. You and I, when we became believers, we didn't just become peons in God's kingdom but members of his house, sons, daughters. These words have more meaning than you and I can appreciate in the here and now. Now, from the standpoint of the people in Ephesus, from the standpoint of the Gentiles, what this meant was that even though you lived in a pagan culture, even though you might have been the most wicked, uncircumcised idol maker in the land, that you, that you were not beyond God's grace. As far as you might have strayed, you were not beyond the grace of the God who came to save you. And once you were saved, you weren't treated, again, as just a peasant, as just a peon in his kingdom, but you were made a a, a citizen, a member, a precious child of his household. Rejoice over this. This is not a small thing. At one point, you were rebels and sinners and enemies of your maker. And what's more, and what's more frightful is he was the enemy of you. But that has changed. And it didn't change because you just got with the program. It changed because God determined to change it. And so he entered into life and he entered into the heart of fallen men. He took that which was dead, hearts of stone, and he gave it new life. He breathed in new life. He he introduced the gospel. He sent messengers with his words and prophets and apostles. And he grew a church and a kingdom out of dry, barren ground. Ephesus, Marietta, around the world. We can't get excited about this. We don't understand it. This is good news. And furthermore, it's good news because when we think about heaven, in our day and age and culture, there are second-class citizens. There are no second-class citizens in heaven. We are each fellow citizens with the saints. Brethren, members of the household of God. Not only has salvation been made possible by Christ, but upon being saved, we have been adopted into his house. What manner of love can that be? Given who we were and given what we did, what manner of love can this be? By which God takes rebels and makes them family members. What manner of love is this? John's great question. It says, Behold, behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Us, the depraved, the deprived, the the, the sinful, the wicked. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called the children of God. All right, let's look at verses 19 and 20. Your fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, we talked about household a little bit, and it has interesting implications. 
If you and I are part of the same household, that makes us family. Let me be clear. It's not just that we're family with God and that he's our father and we're his sons and daughters. Now, that's good and we should rejoice over it. But being part of a household also means that when we were saved, we didn't just enter into a relationship with him, but we entered into a relationship with every last believer, every last son and daughter in our midst. We're family. Does it always feel like that? Maybe not, but that's what it is. You and I are part of the same household. We are part of the same family. This idea that we're part of God's household, it tells us a lot about the close close relationship we share with him. It also tells us a lot about the close relationship we share with one another. You know, whenever Paul talked about the church, he talked about it using the most close bonds, the, the most familiar terms that he possibly could. On some occasions, he stressed a concept that even goes beyond our understanding of family. On some occasions, he says that that we're not just a a people who have similar spiritual family ties. But on other occasions, he says, actually, we are so close and so intimately intertwined, we're like part of the same physical body. Now, let let me explain by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members... In other words, you have a human body, it's one, it's one body, look at a body, so that's, that's a body, but has many parts. There's eyes and ears and nose and fingers and, and, and feet and all these things. For just as the body is one, it has many members, many parts, many components, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. From one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that doesn't make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body, and this is interesting imagery, he's deliberately trying to get you to imagine this and the ridiculousness of this, but he says, if the whole body were an eye, if the whole body was made up of eyes, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, if there was no variation, no fingers and feet and hands, all these things, but the whole body was ears or eyes or noses, he says, where would be the, the utility and benefit of the parts that are missing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, just as he arranged the human body to have all the various capacities and utilities. My hand is not my foot, and they have different utilities. Just as God did that in the human body, as God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose, if all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one. So he takes this this illustration of the physical form, And he uses that for us to understand that just as you can't lop off a hand and send it over there and think that the hand in of itself is the body on its own, just as it would be ridiculous to look at a human form that consisted of nothing but noses, just as ridiculous as that would be, so it is ridiculous when any one of us says, I'm not part of them. After all, they're all hypocrites and sinners, and I, I got a Jesus thing going on. Me and Jesus. I'll go have church on a hillside. And that sounds holy and it's really pompous because it says i know better than god he might call us a body he might talk about churches and elders and deacons and sacraments and all these things i don't need any of that the church is for people who need a crutch church is for the lonely church is for people who need friends church is for people who can't figure out the word on their own i don't need a pastor i sure don't need no elder to give me oversight or shepherding now do people actually talk that way Eh, not so much but they think that way 
And so they're like a nose sitting on a cliff, thinking that in of themselves, they're, they're the whole of the body. Wrong, 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 wrong. Do you and I live that way? Are we lone rangers who selectively engage with only the parts of the church that we like while neglecting the rest and neglecting to love the rest of the people that are there? Or is our Christian walk being done in concert with the body? Uniform, hand in hand, as it was intended. If it's not, again, let me submit to you, there's a gap in your testimony. Whatever the case, time and time again, Paul stresses the unity of the church. Repeatedly, consistently, he returns to this theme and he uses a lot of different images and analogies so we don't miss the point. In today's passage in Ephesians 2, the analogy that he's using of the church is that of a building. Specifically, Paul mentions components that you'll find in any construction, like a foundation, a cornerstone. Now, what was Paul trying to teach the Ephesians with this particular analogy? And what is God trying to teach us this morning? Well, among other things, this analogy reminds us that just as, as there isn't a building around that's composed of just one brick or one block, neither is the church. See, buildings are a composite of many different bricks and, and beams, stone and marble and the likes. Oftentimes, they're anchored by a single pivotal piece, which is sometimes called the cornerstone. In the case of the church, Paul's saying that all the work of God's people across the ages, of the prophets to the apostles and believers into our day, form up one beautiful construction. And that is what we call the church, and it is anchored by the one we call Jesus Christ. So he's saying in these verses, when we became Christians, we became part of a spiritual construction. A spiritual construction, just as you don't take a brick and throw it in a field and say, aha, look at the building. Brick after brick after brick, stone after stone, beam after beam is united in that field to raise up something greater than the individual brick. The same is true here. As Christians, we're part of a spiritual construction. We're, we're, we're to join our strengths and our gifts and our utilities and our calling to it and to the one another. It would not be good or healthy for the building... If any one brick out of our foundation below just wandered off on its own, if it could, and isolated itself, it wouldn't be healthy if one's nose or eyes or ears lopped itself off from the rest of the body and tried to live on its own. The Bible knows no such thing as the independent, isolated, lone ranger Christian. We live, again, in a world that stresses our autonomy and our individualism, but it is not how God sees the church. All right, let me read verses 19 through 22 now in their entirety. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You almost get a sense Paul wanted to, to write, wow, at the end of that. Because that statement is, is filled with the marvel at what this construction is and how important it is. It is not trivial. Again, our culture and even those within the professing body of believers sometimes do trivialize what this is and think that church is irrelevant or unnecessary or just something we need or a crutch in certain seasons of our life. But it's not something by which we as believers are to abide in. If you have that mentality that sees the church as just this peripheral thing to your walk, you're not seeing it through the lens of this. 
in this passage, original context, Paul is telling the people in Ephesus and saying you're part of something that's far greater than you understand, that transcends yourself. It's much more than a man-made affiliation or a club, a group. He's saying that, that the church, this body, is a holy temple. The church is a place in which the, the God now dwells in His Spirit. You know, in His wisdom, God no longer resides in buildings of stone. In His wisdom, God no longer resides in buildings of stone that are made by human hands. The people of Ephesus had seen plenty of temples in their lives. In fact, right in the middle of, of the center of the city, they had a big old temple built for the goddess Artemis. They knew something about temples. Well, against that backdrop, against the backdrop of this temple of stone to a dead god... Against that backdrop, Paul is saying that the real God dwells in the living stones of his people. There's no church, there's no stained glass, there's no pulpit in this land that is the central or primary dwelling place for God in the Spirit. Rather, he makes his holy habitation in the hearts and minds of his people. This is a huge blessing of the New Testament economy over and against the old. And if we don't think that this is marvelous, if we don't think this is a, 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 something to wonder over, we're probably not seeing it rightly. We're not seeing it through the eyes of Paul. Paul knew something about temples. He knew something about the temple in Jerusalem. As a proud Hebrew, he would have loved the temple in Jerusalem. And yet as impressive as that temple may have been in its heyday, it was nothing compared to the spiritual structure that he knew was growing even now. The spiritual temple that we call the church is a far greater thing than any building of brick and mortar that has ever existed. It's not to be trivialized. It's also not to be trampled upon. When, when you hear people deriding the church as something wicked, something evil, something, a bunch of hypocrites, a bunch of sinners, it may be true. There are hypocrites and sinners, and every last one of us is, falls in one or both of these categories. Even though this, those things might be true, remember, whenever you hear someone stomp underfoot the church, remember that the church is the bride for which Christ died. And he doesn't look at the church that way. When Christ looks at the church, he isn't cynical. He isn't pointing out all of its flaws. He sees it in its radiance. As a beautiful bride adorned for her husband. Don't demean the church. Don't think it's something less than it is. And don't think that it's unnecessary to you and I. Now, there's more we could say about these verses, but with our remaining time, I want to make a, I guess a final related observation. You know, in any, in any given building, whatever it is, including the building we're all in this morning, the bricks and the stones that form up the construction support the other bricks and stones, right? And if they don't, if they stop supporting the other bricks and stones, the whole thing collapses. Now, we know this to be true. You ever play the game Jenga? The game with the little little twigs or sticks, whatever it is, and you pull out one and the whole thing goes kablooey. You ever done this? You know, you look at that and you play with friends and you're each looking for, well, where's the weakest? What can I pull out that has no bearing on the rest of the building? Now, there might be a couple of things you can move here and there, but given enough time, you're going to pull out one and the whole thing is going to fall. Same is true with any, any construction known to man. This very building that we're in, there's a lot of stones, a lot of bricks that form it up, a lot of beams. Which one of these beams do you want to remove and see what happens? I trust as we all look up, we don't want to see any of them go away. We know we need every one of these in order to keep the roof from falling in our own, on our own heads. Bricks, logs, beams support the bricks and logs and beams around them. The same is true in the church. You are a support mechanism for the rest of the body. Or at least you are to be a support mechanism for the rest of the body. 
You're a living stone. And the idea here is that you form up part of the construction. And without you, the, the, the structure of the entire thing is threatened. The integrity of that structure. Each brick supports and sustains the whole. Now, if that's the analogy that we see in this passage, then the question for you and I as individuals is, are we fulfilling our responsibilities in that way? Are we really supporting the work of the church? Are we really supporting the, the heartbeats and needs of the people around us? You and I, when God joined us to a local congregation, the same principle of the, this text applied to us. We live in an incredibly transient community. I get that. I know it's different than in centuries past where people grew up with the same people their the entire lives. I know that we live in a more transient place. I know people move in and out and so forth. And because of that, it can be harder or more difficult to really get to know and build longer lasting relationships with the people in our midst. I understand that. It doesn't change the mandate. Just because it's more understandable that we really don't know each other at times, it doesn't change the mandate that we are to. If God brought you into our body, especially those of us who have been here for some time, He didn't bring you here to be a bystander. And He didn't bring you here to be a consumer and just sample the parts of the, the whole that you particularly like while avoiding the parts you don't or avoiding the people that you don't. You and I are part of a body in order to support the body. It's in our very vows. And when we forget or neglect that, then the whole structure is weakened ever as much as if it would be weakened if we take out a beam. How are we doing in these matters? Are we living stones in Christ's church? And if we're not, if we look introspectively at these things and say, I'm really not, then what are we going to do about it? I would ask you to reconsider your engagement. If we're to be the church we're called to be, we need the involvement of the whole of the church. Consider things like Sunday school. We have a wonderful Sunday school that's being taught right now, an adult Sunday school class that's being taught in covenant theology. I would encourage you to come and partake. We have children's Sunday school programs that are taught by a host of wonderfully gifted volunteers who do a wonderful job educating our youth. Consider Sunday school. It's in Sunday school that our prayer requests are first identified and first noted. It's one of the quickest ways to start learning what's really going on in the heartbeat of the people in which I've been yoked. I also going to encourage you to participate in the various service opportunities, church work days. There are a number of them. You can serve on our various ministry teams, of which there are a number of them, and we need volunteers. You can attend our various fellowship meals or seminars. There's a lot of ways to get involved. What I'm, what I'm saying is there's a lot of ways to get engaged. If God, through this word, I, I, I speak as I do on every topic. I'll speak with enthusiasm and vigor, and, and I'll try to champion what I believe is right here. If God is using the words of Scripture this morning to stir your spirit, there are real substantive ways that you can respond. There are ways you can get more engaged. I would encourage you to be proactive. Life as a believer is about being proactive and seeking out ways to engage with the truth we've heard and to respond to it. So I'd encourage you to, to look to ways to participate in the life and the heartbeat of the whole of the body. It's so those sort of activities I've mentioned, that the bonds that we need are forged. Don't neglect or refute what Paul said in this text. When we do, we do harm to our witness in a fallen world. They will know we are Christians by the love we have for one another. They will know we are Christians by the love we have for those in the church. In the time yet ahead, let our love for one another grow that the world may know. Let me pray for us. This has been a sermon by Pastor Toby Holt of Christ Presbyterian Church in Marietta, Georgia. If you would like to hear other sermons by Pastor Holt, please visit our website at www.christpca.org or you can find us on sermonaudio.com.